Good morning, church. Good to be back. I haven't been here for a few weeks. I was on vacation, and um, it seems like the uh, Adam and then Matt both teaching. They seem to want to talk a lot about sports, um, which I think is good because I don't talk a lot about sports. So you know, if you enjoy sports, then those were great two weeks of respite. But um, uh, only one correction uh, to to their teaching, which was. Uh, uh, Adam made the comment at one point that uh, no one, no one who's young at his church thinks he's young, and he said no one, no one young at your church thinks Ed's young. I don't think that's true. I, I haven't talked to the young people. That's how I refer to them. Uh, I haven't talked to the young people um, directly about this, but I kind of get the sense from them that they consider me to be a pretty hip and a pretty cool guy. So, that's the only thing that Adam says. Uh, said that I disagreed with. Everything else was good. Um, if you have a Bible um, and you wanted to open it to Romans chapter 1, we are starting the next part of our summer series. This is a series wherein we're talking about um, the things that God is and why that matters so much for us and why believing in who God is and who he says he is really is what changes everything for us. Uh, we've talked about God's goodness. We've talked now for the last three weeks about God's graciousness. Uh, in talking about his goodness, we talked about how uh, God is so good that there is nothing else that will fulfill us or give us pleasure more than God himself, and that when we are not fulfilled in him, we will look elsewhere because we will be incomplete. When we talked about God's graciousness, we talked about the good news that God is so gracious uh, that it means we have nothing to prove. It means that we can see ourselves and other people differently than the world does because we don't function on the basis of what we can accomplish and who we can become, but instead we rest in the graciousness of God, which is a wonderful, wonderful thing. That it's hard for us uh, to believe that God is good, that may sound crazy to us. Like, no, I'd want to believe that God is good. Why wouldn't I want to believe that? And yet many of us struggle to believe that, as we know, because we seek fulfillment in other things. Many of us even struggle to believe in the graciousness of God and actually receive it. That as Christians, more than anything, we are known for how we receive, not how we act and how we give. Does that seem crazy and kind of, un, kind of backwards? And yet, if God's graciousness really is what gives us life, then as we even grow as Christians, we become better at receiving God's grace, not at accomplishing things and then being able to stand in those ourselves. That seems so counterintuitive to us. This morning we talk about how great God is, how big, how magnificent, how powerful God is, and what good news that is, and yet how hard that is for some of us to believe much of the time. I wanna look at Romans, and um, we're going to look at the beginning of Romans, verses 18 through 22. And I'm going to put that up on the screen as we read through it. You're probably familiar with these verses if you are a Christian and have been in church for a while. Oh, I did it, Steve. I messed up. Steve uh, fixed our clicker so that it clicks better. And he said, he even reminded me, he said, don't do it. Don't get trigger happy. And I just did it. So <sighs> I just got to listen to Steve more. Um, 
Romans 1.18-22 says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and, all unrighteous, and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. When I was, we'll stop right there. When I was a a youth pastor in my first years of of really full-time ministry, I was serving at a church that was going through a very big building campaign. And there was something about this building campaign that just drove me crazy. I felt, like, I felt like all we were doing was talking about this big, beautiful building that we wanted to build. And uh, I was a first-year seminary student, which is not an easy person to be around, I'll be honest. Um, I, I was fairly certain that I knew everything. Um, and, uh, you know, no one told me this. But I'm, I'm starting to wonder as I think back if I literally looked in the mirror every morning and told myself this because I was very confident of it. But nevertheless, I was so bothered by how much we were talking about just building and raising money and all this stuff, thinking this isn't what we need to be talking about so much as a church. It seemed like everything was wrapped up in that. And I became, my office was right next to where they would have these lunches where they would have uh, small groups come in and they would kind of do presentation and talk with them about the campaign and everything. And so, so day after day, I would hear it over and over again to where I could probably give the talk myself and it would just drive me crazy. And I was so furious in my righteous indignation that I one day went to the park and I just had a Bible with me and I was like, I was praying. I was like, God, just talk to me here. Like, help me know what am I supposed to do? I need to know what to say. I was like, I'm going to go. I'm going to go talk to my my lead pastor or somebody. I'm going to probably have this great big giant scene that I'll make. It'll be epic and amazing. And uh, like a prophet in the Bible. And I go and I, and I, and I go to this park and I open up the Bible and I start trying like, where does it talk about church? You know, I'm like, I'll I'll start reading. So I start reading and I start looking at different things in the Bible. And, and every time I get to something where it starts talking about the church, it starts talking about church. It keeps talking about this it was super frustrating because they kept talking about unity and I was like okay fine unity I get it and then I go read another thing and it talk about like unity and I read another thing and it'd be like reunited brothers then I talk about another thing and be like yeah these other things kind of bother you I get it but remember whatever you do don't become disunited against one another and I read these things and I'm like ah so frustrating and after like a solid hour of this probably I was like I think God might be trying to tell me something here And I walked away deeply convicted by how ready I was because I believed I was so right to go and just blow everything up the best that I possibly could. Whereas instead, looking back, I'm so grateful that God sort of intervened at that point. Have you ever opened up the Bible looking for ammunition? Have you ever opened up the Bible already knowing what you hope that you can find there? 
verses on a particular thing, an argument, something to bolster an argument on a particular issue, something that you know because you're a good Christian, and obviously you wouldn't think bad things if you're a good Christian, want bad things if you were a good Christian. You know that you're right. You just need to find the evidence that you probably forgot about at some point, and so you go. Uh, Google searches can help with this. Um, just so you know, like pastors are really good at knowing about Google searches, so sometimes like after conversations with people, you'll Google search something and be like, yep, that's everything they said. I thought so, right? You Google search maybe, whatever that may be. If you're honest with yourself, you might have to admit that there are times that you have opened the Bible hoping to find something for a specific purpose. These verses in Romans 1, this is a set of verses that perhaps more than any other verses have been used to, we use the phrase, club over the head of non-Christians for years. This is one of the go-to passages that, that we find it and we read it and we read it to one another and we say, this is what the world has done. It has, it has exchanged the truth of God for a lie. We, 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 we say it has, it has clearly uh, knew about God, could see the evidence of God in creation. He made himself known, and yet what did people do with the knowledge that they had of God? Instead of believing in that God and believing he was who he said he was, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and instead chose to serve, not him, but created things. And in this case, it was idols. And idols are basically the other things people serve. So their choice was, do we serve this almighty God or do we serve the other things that everybody else rallies around, that they have their confidence and their hope in. We read this, and we often use it as a way. This is Paul making the argument as he's building the case for the gospel for the death penalty. He is saying as the prosecution, this is why the sentence is death, because of just how corrupt and how evil people allowed themselves to become, even though God gave them every reason to believe otherwise. When we talk about sin, we talk about behaviors and actions, we talk about the things that we do, but what Romans gets, what Paul gets here, and it's why we go to this so often when dealing with those who we're frustrated with or the outside world, is that, is that Paul says it starts far earlier than the actions. It starts in the heart, it starts in the mind. That the root of sin comes from disbelief. It comes from people exchanging the truth of God for a lie. That's where he traces it all the way back to in building his case. He said God made himself clear who he was. People even knew who he was, especially God's people did. And yet when they allow that, um, that view of him to be distorted, then themselves to believe something that's not true then because the heart is a river and from it flows the streams of life, then the actions of that person, because their heart is corrupted now, our actions, the behaviors, the things that we see as sin, come about to be very evil things. We think of sin as behavior, as actions. But sin is a lack of, of belief. It is, it is believing things that are untrue about God. And those things lead to some of the actions and behaviors that we all have to deal with with each other. But it gets traced far back, further than that. 
what if this passage, these verses, the ones that often bolster some of the strongest cases that we have against those outside the church in their corruptness and their sinfulness, what if these verses applied to us? What if these very same verses applied to us? What if some of us, many of us, maybe all of us, could be considered guilty of knowing the truth of who God says he is and yet choosing to believe something else, a lie, something different? We read in Deuteronomy after... Uh, after Moses has brought the Ten Commandments down to the Egyptians and then he saw the bad stuff, the calf and everything, he broke them in anger. And then God commands him to make another set of tablets and he does and God instructs him to put those tablets in an ark, which he does. And we read right after that in Deuteronomy 10, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him and by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God. He who has, who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as stars of heaven. How clear could this be to a group of people who already are supposed to know about how great God is? If anyone knows and has physically witnessed and seen and experienced and lived out the greatness of God, the bigness of God, the magnificence of God, the power of God, the intimate knowledge of God, it is the Israelites. And yet, Moses is reminding them once again of just who this God is, just how great he has made these people. And this statement that he makes the Lord your God is God of gods, Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. This is who he is. This word great for the great, it actually, when literally translated, means sort of greater. It's, uh, it, it, the idea of it is that it's a thing that's actually growing. If you were to translate the Greek, you would see that it, it pertains more to something that's expanding, that's, 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 that's bigger this God is, is greater, more supreme than anything else. God is in control. Moses is saying to these people something that most of us would agree to if I said it this morning. If I said God is great, you would be most likely, you would say, yes, God is great. If I said God is in control, God is mighty, God is powerful, you might be inclined to say, yes, God is in control, God is mighty, God is powerful. And yet, I think it might be possible that many of us say these things, whereas in our heart we have exchanged this big view of God for a very small one. 
When we look at our lives, when we look at the way that we feel about our lives, our circumstances, the world in which we live, when we look at the way we act and treat one another, are we living and behaving and acting as those who trust in a God who is mighty, who is great, and who is in control? Or do we live as people who have the same fears, the same anxieties, the same anger, the same frustration, the same dismay as those who trust in lesser things, who have exchanged the truth of God for a lie? And if we see that way, then what kinds of actions and behaviors come as a result of that? See, the truth is that if uh, we have believed the lie, if we have believed something other than who God says he is, then we can see that in the way that we live, in the way that we feel. God is powerful. God is mighty. God is in control. I want to be in control. I want things to be predictable. I want things to go the way that I want. It is hard for me to live in a world like the world that I live in to experience the things that I've been through and to believe that God is actually great, that he's actually in control, many might say. And if you feel like it's easy for you to believe that, if you feel like you do believe that, you're confident of that, then great. You get to take the week off. You get to listen. There are ways to know that we have exchanged this big idea of God for a smaller idea of God. There are ways to see it in our lives. It's sort of the, the way we say it here is if there's a tell, you know, the thing that gives away this thing in our lives or maybe even sometimes in the lives of others. First, the deceived heart, the heart that is deceived by this is one that is afraid. Afraid of what's happening now or what's going to happen in the future. Scared people are ready to defend themselves. Scared people are ready to fight. Scared people see enemies are ready to protect from harm that may come. Scared people often don't feel safe. If we've believed a smaller thing about God than who he says he is, then that often leads to fear. Are you afraid? Do you feel afraid? Do you find yourself feeling afraid? Afraid about things in your own life? Afraid about things out there? Afraid about things in here. But God says to us in his word again and again, I am your defense, I am your defender, I am your refuge. The person who says that they trust in God and is still afraid is like a person holding a shield and a sword saying, you know what I could really use right now is a shield and a sword. Anybody know where I can get one of those? Because that is essentially the Christian feeling still the need to defend, to protect, and to fight. The deceived heart is angry. The, the heart of the person who has exchanged the truth of God and how great he is for the lie that God is smaller than he says he is and not in control is angry. The root of anger is, is the word ought. Anger comes from us 
thinking things should be one way and they're another way. If you, if you are ever angry, you can probably trace it back to that in some way. Why am I angry? Because it should be this way and it's not. I should be treated this way and I'm not. They should be treated that way and they're not. They should be acting that way and they're not. And it makes me angry. Angry people are never short on observations about things not being the way that they should be. People not being the way that they should be. Angry people aren't short on frustrations over the state of the way that things are. And this rarely gets beyond that point. Oftentimes, an angry person feels that really our, their job, I'll say our job, their job is to just point out how bad it is, how wrong it is, how bad things are. We've got a lot of angry people in the world. We've got a lot of that happening these days. Yet Paul tells us, when he talks about how we relate to the world, how we live as Christians, to do whatever we can to be at peace with everyone. This is a hard thing to do when you're, number one, fighting because you're afraid. Number two, pointing out and accusing because you're angry. The deceived heart is afraid. The deceived heart is angry. The deceived heart, the heart of the person who believes not that God is as great as he says he is, but that he's smaller than he says he is, is exhausted and is stressed. If we truly believe in the greatness of God, then we can rest in that. The person who cannot rest, the person who is exhausted, the person who is constantly needing to do things and to be doing things is often a person who struggles with this idea that God is actually in control. It's going to be okay. He doesn't actually technically, literally need you to do that thing for him. He's allowing you to do that thing for him. He's choosing to use you to do something for him. But this is often the heart of someone. This deceived heart looks this way and leads to this. These people are under the illusion that things hinge on them and what they need to do. But God says, relax. Chill out. Take it easy. Take a day off. The deceived heart presumes that at some point along the way, God lost control of things. Presumes that at some point along the way, things change from what we read about in the Bible. Things not in my life, not in my circumstances, not in my situation, not in our world today. Yes, God's great. Sure, I trust that he's in control. But here's why it makes sense that I'm afraid, that I'm exhausted, that I'm, um, that I'm angry. Here's why it makes sense. When the soldiers came to arrest Jesus and a disciple pulled out a sword to defend him, Jesus said, stop. If my father wanted to, he could call down legions of angels. This is not how we do things. Reminding them, we're not here to do this. And you might hear this and you might say, but doesn't, 
the Bible say, you know, about the armor of God? And that seems like a fight thing, right? Like we're supposed to put that on. We're supposed to protect ourselves. We're supposed to be ready to fight, ready to battle. It seems like God needs people to battle and fight for him. Well, go back and read about the armor of God, which comes in the context of a discussion about a spiritual enemy and a spiritual battle saying that the true enemy that we are fighting is a spiritual one who is trying to destroy you from within. And so if you're engaged in a spiritual battle, if you're engaged in a spiritual back and forth with this enemy, then my question might be, why are there so many human casualties that you might be creating? Because we might claim to be engaged in spiritual battles, and yet it means really people left by the wayside. Because of our anger, because of our fear, because of our need to be in control. One of the things that we do often when we feel this way is we use this language of God wants us to fight. One of the other things that we do is we just say, yeah, God just wants this to all be over now. I had so many conversations with people who, in lamenting the state of their own life, the state of things in the world, believe that the biblical response is to say, oh, God, come and just drop rocks on everybody. We're going to heaven. I'm looking forward to that. A person who trusts that God is in control does not look to the end of things, but instead asks the question, what is God calling me to do now? Who is God calling me to reach now? God does not expect me to control what's going on around me. He says, I got this, I've got that, I've got it covered and taken care of. Do you trust me enough to step out of the boat and walk on the waves in the midst of the uncertainty that you feel? What that looks like here and now is choosing to live our lives even when we're afraid, even when we're angry, even when we're exhausted and stressed out, and to instead say, who can I go to with the hope of Jesus? What we are to do is to believe the truth about who God says that he is. We are to rest in that, to go back to that, and to ask ourselves the question, am I really believing that God is as great as he says he is today? If God is great, I don't have to be afraid. If God is great, I don't have to be afraid. If God is great... I don't have to be angry, and if God is great, I don't have to be in control. To actually believe that God is who he says he is means that you treat almost everything you encounter differently. We are to be the people who see everything differently because we trust in the greatness of our God. We are free to live in a completely different way without the burden of having to run the show. We have the hope of Jesus knowing that God is in control. 
we do our jobs differently than people who don't get to trust in a God who is as great as our God says that he is. The way that we are with our kids and our family reflects a belief that we don't have to be in control and that God is as great as he says he is. Our health, our thoughts, and our opinions about other people in the world around us, the outlook that we have on things now and on the future, all of these things are shaped by and are different because of how great God is and us trusting in that. We're used to trusting in God when we have no other options. He is like literally the net just before the ground. We're used to talking about God as a safety net. We're used to talking about God as something that comes out when, you know, trusting in him, trusting God. God's in control when we've lost the ability to do anything much of the time which is why some of the people who accomplish the most for the gospel and for the kingdom of God, some of the people who he chooses to use are not the powerful. Most of the people he chooses to use are not the powerful, are not those who have the illusion that they're in control because of the job they have, the position they have, the part of the world they live in, whatever else it is, but it is those instead who are weak and recognize, I don't have control. I'm not in control. Those are the ones that can use the power that God has more quickly and more easily. This is such good news because it means that thanks to the greatness of God, this statement is true. I could spend, I've thought about spending this first message in in this new part of our series giving you the biblical case for the greatness of God. Here's all of the different parts of the Bible that talk about how big he is. Here's what God said to Job. He was like, I mean, we could get into all that. You weren't there when I did all this stuff, when I made all this happen. We could talk about exactly how great he is, the miracles that he's performed, the things that he's done, but we could also talk about how intimately he knows us and how incredibly uh, profound his knowledge of us is, and that no matter how hard we try to understand ourselves, he'll understand us even better still. But I don't think that that's the thing that we get stuck on. I don't think that most of us are unclear on what the Bible says about the greatness of God. I think the challenge for us is the temptation, how easy it is to exchange the truth of who God is for the lie of something lesser. And to begin to look like people who trust in man, who trust in the idols of this world, who trust in the things that everyone else has to put their hope in as a way of gaining any kind of control. I was talking to the Heplers um, a few nights ago about how I was writing this, working on this message this week and how this was a message about God being in control and that I was thinking about Doug because Doug has struggled with anxiety before, which is something I've struggled with. And that when you start to talk about, and, and, and if you go through the God is things, God is great is, is really the big one for people who struggle with fear and anxiety, who struggle with, uh, you know, that kind of thing. And I was just, I, so I was, I was saying that to Vicki and she said, she said that she had just talked to Doug. She said, we were just talking about this a couple, maybe yesterday. She said, as he was there in the hospital, we were talking about what God was teaching us right now in life, what he had been teaching us over this last year, and that she felt like God had been teaching her that uh, she needed to just 
be able to sit still, to be still, you know? And some of us are like, yeah, it took a year and a half like this for God to teach me to sit still. And then I still went back and started doing everything else again as soon as I could. She said, but Doug told her, he said, God is using this to show me that I just need to let go of control. I just, I'm just not in control. Now, here's the really scary part, is trusting a God is like our God. Trusting a God who says, I am in control, you don't have to be. But knowing that that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that we'll live to see the next day. It doesn't. Because our hope is not in what we have here and now. Our hope is not in this life. Why is it hard for us to believe that God's still in control? Because we want things to go differently than they go. Because we disagree with the way that he is managing things and we want new management. And we think that maybe we can be an interim for a while until maybe something better comes along. It is so hard for us to trust in who God says that he is oftentimes. And I could give you so many reasons. I could give you so much evidence for why you should trust the greatness of God. And we'll probably get into that in the next few weeks. But the question that you have to ask yourself is a personal one because we don't collectively trust the greatness of God as a group. We individually trust him. It is a decision that each one of us has to make by looking within our own hearts and saying, do I believe that God is as big as he says he is? That what Doug is talking about, that what I've struggled with myself so often, is something that each and every one of us has to go through and ask that question. Nobody else can point the finger at you. Nobody else can tell you exactly how big your God is in your own heart, in your own mind, in your own life. You have to look in and you have to ask yourself, does my life reflect, does the way I feel, the way that I act, the way that I do things, the way that I navigate my life, does it reflect a view, a trust in a huge, magnificent, in control, sovereign God? Or have I exchanged the truth of that God for something lesser because that's what we do? If so, then ask him to expand your trust in him, your view of him, and repent of that. As we take communion right now and as we worship, we do this. We do this as often as we do because uh, no matter how hard we try, no matter what we do, we are not the ones that earn the relationship that we have with God, the status that we have with God, being a part of his family, being his children. It is only because of what Christ has done that the answer here today is not go out and prove, go out and prove just how much you trust God, because if you try, you'll fail because you're a sinner and you live in the flesh, know that just like we talked about last week, it is because of God's graciousness that we have nothing to prove. That we instead can come to God without fear and say, this is how incomplete my trust of you is much of the time. 
and that we can trust that Jesus is the reason why God will meet us there and has met us there and that Jesus is the one our confidence is in. Let's pray. Father, you are so good, you are so gracious, and you are such a great and mighty God, Lord. Our world is not a reflection of you not being in control. God, this is a hard thing for many of us to believe. You are the God who brought your people out of Egypt. You are the God who grew them into a mighty nation. You are the God who rescued them from the hands of their enemies. You are that God who loves them deeply and personally. We know that people are prone to forget, are prone to exchange the truth of who you are for something else. And as easy as it is for us to look outside the walls of this church and to say, those are the ones that do that, Lord, we recognize that sin begins with our lack of faith and belief in you and our hearts, God. God, would you give us an overwhelming sense of peace and knowing that you are truly in control of things. God, this morning, we are not just a group of people who are here celebrating. We are a group that is here mourning. We are not a group that is here in the midst of a perfect city, a perfect year, a perfect season, perfect families, perfect jobs. We are a group of people who are struggling to see your power in all of those things. Would you give us the ability to bring that to your feet, Lord? It's in your name that we pray. Amen.